When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Tracy Sagara. Going to the bathroom at work everywhere. I'm I'm like masturbating nonstop. You know? <laughs> that and more. But before that, I just want to say that Risk is supported in part by Squarespace.com. Whether you need a landing page, a gallery, a professional blog, an online store, it's all included with your Squarespace website. Squarespace makes building a beautiful, gorgeous, professional-looking website super easy. It's a free custom domain. You get beautiful templates and seamless commerce tools. Hundreds of thousands of savvy shop owners rely on Squarespace commerce tools. They work beautifully. And customer support, it's 24-7. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com slash risk to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. And don't forget our phenomenal deal with adamandeve.com. For a limited time, you'll get 50% off just about any item. When you select one item at 50% off, You'll also receive three free adult DVDs, plus a free exclusive gift. And to top it all off, they'll throw in free shipping on your entire order. There is a huge selection of adult products at adamandeve.com. I mean, a lot of what you'd buy there are staples that you'd need to buy anyway. Condoms, lube, Japanese clover nipple clamps. I mean, at least for me, I don't leave home without them. Guys, go to adamandeve.com and use the code RISK at the checkout. That's R-I-S-K at adamandeve.com. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Frank Zappa, behind me now. Hey, before we do anything today, before we goddamn settle into Mickey Fickin' anything, I want to ask every each and one of you, (laughs) that's not the way that that is said, but I still want to ask it, do you know that Risk is on Twitter and Facebook? You should be following us there on Twitter and Facebook. We're at Risk Show. I was just in, in Toronto. We did a fabulous show in Toronto. Made a little video showing the whole audience, saying hello to you guys. 
that's the kind of thing that you can find on our social media. And, and you can converse, you can conversate with us, with the storytellers and musicians, and with your fellow Risk fans there. Half of the Risk experience is happening out there on social media. So follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show. And on Twitter, I personally am also at the Kevin Allison. Spread the Mickey Ficken word, my friends. Word to your mama. We are calling today's episode On Second Thought. These are three very different stories. I mean, there's going to be some laughs, some excruciating moments. The second story might be rough on some of you who might have, you know, experience with violence in the home. And there's some sexy stuff on the show as well. We're all over the map. We're calling it on second thought because all three storytellers viewed their circumstances at the time they were going through them differently than they do now. And all for different reasons. We're going to start with Al Jackson here. Uh, This is Al's second time on the show and yet another completely insane situation uh, he's reporting to us about. Al is a writer and comedian based in Los Angeles. You can find him at aljacksonlive.com. Here he is now at our monthly Risk Live show at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles with a story we call note-taking, and organization. for the polite applause. How about a hand for all the dope stories y'all heard? Yes. Fuck it. Sometimes I'm like, I feel like my whole career, I've been doing stand-up for 10 years, I feel like my whole career, I just feel like a fan that like sneaks backstage. And I'm always like, oh shit, I have to perform. Uh, I decided to tell this story because it's near and dear to my heart. And I just kind of started talking about this. I started comedy in South Florida, in uh, Miami. And I started in black rooms, which is tough, because they set you up to fail. Like the way Beowulf brings you up, it's like, all right, y'all, we're going to bring Al Jackson. He's got a half-hour special. He's got this and that. Clap your hands. Here's how you get brought up in South Florida. The host will do like 50 minutes, and he's killing. And you're like, I'm about to bomb. Like, I'm about to take this. And you go, and the host goes, all right, y'all. We got to get this dude out here. Um, listen, y'all know how to act. If you don't like it, just... I didn't book them. That's what you go up to. And the gig, uh, this is early in my career, and this gig I'm going to talk about, uh, you have to understand where I was in my career, so this makes sense. At this point, you can kind of take or leave gigs, but I needed this money. I was going to do this show. I was broke as fuck. I was going to do this show no matter what. I was gonna do the show. No matter what happened. I'm doing a show. 
Do we have that? We got that? This is roof money. This is so rain doesn't hit my head money. Uh, and I did a college in Florida. It was the first time I'd ever been treated really nicely. They put me up at the Westin, uh, which is a big deal, and the show was at the Westin, but there were two things that were kind of weird about the show. First of all, uh, they wanted me to wear a suit, which is fine. I don't care. I needed the money. Second of all, the show was at 8 o'clock in the morning, which... <laughs> It's a good time to hear jokes. You, know, you want some, you want some dick jokes with those eggs? Uh, I was gonna do the show. I was gonna do the fucking show. I don't care. Uh, so colleges are weird. Colleges are different because comedy clubs—they're the same. Anytime you go to a comedy club, just, they just really just turn the lights on, bring the waitresses. Same thing every time. Colleges are different. Sometimes you do like. The University of Colorado, it's already sold out. They give you a check before you go on stage. You kill it for an hour and they carry you out that bitch like Rudy. <laughs> and then the next day, you'll be at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. The show's at noon. The mic is on the fucking floor when no bikes stand. People are getting fish sticks and they're like, just get up and start telling jokes. I'm like, that's not how a show starts. That's what a schizophrenic would do. Uh, I'm not gonna just stand up in the cafeteria and start talking. Uh, <laughs> So shows are just different, they're crazy, they're just ridiculous. But you do them because uh, colleges pay great money. So I was gonna do the show. So it's like 7.30 in the morning, I got my men's warehouse suit on, and I'm like, colleges are different. I'm like, sometimes I didn't know how much time they wanted me to do. So I was like, let me look at my contract, because my old manager told me, always do your time, because they won't pay you if you don't do your time. That's the one thing colleges are. So I'm just like, I'm gonna do my time. And I looked at the contract, and they wanted me to do an hour, which is fine, I could do an hour, but they didn't want me to tell jokes. They wanted me to do an hour speech on note-taking and organization. <laughs> Who could make that up? Like, what comic could make that up? Like this, like, and I read it a couple times. I was like, that doesn't really make sense. But it was like 7.40. You know what I'm saying? It's like 7.40. So I'm like, I used to be a middle school teacher, so I was like, I know like a little bit about this. And I had one of those old school Mac power books, those big gray ones. So I downloaded just from Google, I just took like a screenshot of just like an outline of how to give a speech on note taking in case, in worst case scenario. You know what I'm saying? Worst case scenario, I have to do this. So I get that, close the MacBook, and I go down to the bottom, and the show was like in that big grand ballroom that's up at the bottom where people get married. And uh, the doors open the elevator, and the liaison from the college opens it, it, like, she's standing there, it's like 7.55, she goes, are you Jackson? I go, yeah. She goes, you're late. She takes me to the double doors, throws open the double doors. There are 750 college kids <laughs> in suits, pantsuits, iPads, MacBook Airs, ready to hear this motherfucker <laughs> give a speech on something he's never heard of. And I know y'all are a smart crowd and y'all like, y'all are getting ahead of me. Like, well, how'd you get out of it? What's the funny part? Tell us how you get out of it. I didn't get out of it. And it wasn't funny. It was parted like it is right here. And I had to walk down and I can just feel college people. Because they were just like, this dude don't look like a speaker. You know what I'm saying? Just, and so I walked down, I got my MacBook. And here, at least, even if you're going to bomb up here, you can at least move around and fuck, try and get the crowd going. Like, it was at a podium, and it just had one of those, like, Burger King mics that's, like, stuck on the thing. So you can't, you're like, you're just behind the podium, like, this is, I, I got nothing. And 
I just hope y'all can grasp this. I, I'm like, okay, this is gonna go down. I just gotta bullshit my way out. Like I've taught school five years, I could, I could do this, I could do this. And I, I'll never forget this as long as I live. I put my MacBook on the, uh, on the podium and I go to open it and the battery just dies. Like as I open it, just immediately, it was just like, it was just that gray apple, you know, where you just go, oh shit. But your face can't show that. Your face gotta be like, well, now it's time to start this. I have nothing but a gray apple and I just have to look at that like I'm referring to nothing. And we have to like take this out of like a comedic setting for a second because I don't think like y'all understand like how long 60 minutes is in real time. You know what I'm saying? Like, you'll be like, dude, I fucking waited for you for an hour. Like, what the fuck? But it wasn't, I was like 41 minutes, you know, like 60 minutes, six, zero. You know, like every third year at Thanksgiving, it's your turn to give the Thanksgiving prayer. And that shit's super awkward. And how long is that? 20 Mississippi? <laughs> Think about if you had to give the prayer this year for an hour, only you didn't know what a prayer was. That's where we were. I am bombing and every comic that's down on them stairs right now and I was like, when you're bombing, it's such a weird thing. Cause I don't sweat on stage at all. And you just start sweating, like sweat from your side and like the back of you, like you're just sweating and you're bombing cause you start stuttering. Then you start trying to go fast and you're like, stop talking so fast, you gotta do an hour. So you start trying to stutter. And I was like trying to do shit, like doing my low. Cause like when comics, this is like every comic knows it's like downstairs. When a comic don't have enough time to fill the time, they always ask the audience questions cause that fucking kills time. So you're like, hey, how you doing? Where you from? And that just kills time with the back and forth. And I was trying to do that with the college kids, but they were, <laughs> they weren't giving me shit. I was like, I was like, let's open it up to questions and nothing, no one, like no one said shit. So then I have to awkwardly just pull that back like I didn't ask for help. And I am fucking bombing, bombing. And God bless these college kids. This is not their fault. It was like, they were just confused. It was just like, if I had just dragged a French film on stage and played it backwards, like they were like, what is, why are we in here? I, I am bombing so bad that I got hired by this young black dude uh, to do the gig. I'm bombing so bad that he's got this, you know, like that app, that app where you just got the flashing red light on your phone and he's doing like this and fuck, give me the throw slash, like get the fuck off, get the fuck off. I'm like, nope, he's not gonna pay me. He's not gonna pay me, he's not gonna pay me. I was just thinking about my old manager, like they're not gonna pay you, stay on stage. And I stayed up there <laughs> for an hour, for real, not 58. Not 45, I stayed for an hour and I ate my dick like a G. Like I took, I took my stripping, I didn't run, I fucking took it. I took that shit. And I get off stage and like the dude was in the back, the dude, the young black dude, uh, he had my check. He was so mad, he threw my check on the ground. I needed the money, I went to go get it. And like as I reached to go get it, this like big, like six foot four, like older, like 50 year old white guy, like brushed past me on his way to the stage, like so hard, like if somebody did it to you in a bar, like it would start a fight. Like, I mean, he really aggressively pushed past me to go to the stage and he goes right up on the stage, right behind the podium and starts giving a speech on note taking and organization. <laughs> I know, 
funny story, kids. The college fucked up and sent me that dude's contract. I was supposed to do 15 minutes of jokes to liven up his boring ass fucking speech. And instead, I did his shit for him. Only with zero knowledge. Because I needed the money. Guys, I've been Al Jackson. Thank y'all so much. Thank y'all, Risk. Love y'all. He did enough work to hang on to his job. As long as times are good, there'll be jobs for fellows who just barely do enough to get by. But to keep a job when the going gets rough, you need to insure your job. Make yourself so valuable your employer can't let you go. When I was about five years old, my parents moved to Minden, Nevada from California, and they started a daycare business. They started watching kids in their home and expanded that business. And it was my mom that mainly ran the business, and my dad basically ran errands. He would uh, drop kids off at school, he would pick them up from school, he would watch them on occasion and I use that term loosely because he would lay on a big table in the middle of the room and sometimes take a nap or look at his snowmobiling magazine so he definitely was not as involved in the daycare business my mom was the brains behind the operation it's very interesting that they managed to keep this business running for over 30 years, which is kind of a shock to a lot of people when I tell them stories of my childhood and they're like, oh my God, these people have no business working with kids. I remember from a very early age that if I would have any toys out, like in the middle of the living room floor, if I didn't put them away, that my dad would get very angry and pick up my toys and throw them across the room and break them and smash them. My sister got a puppy, and it was a Doberman Pinscher, and so my dad had the ears cropped on this Doberman Pinscher, and we had to tape the ears to keep them erect. And the dog was, you know, trying to squirm out of my dad's hands while he was trying to wrap the puppy's ears. And he got very angry and threw the dog across the room. That dog later on developed a tumor on the side of its neck my dad actually blaming himself. Maybe it's because I threw the dog across the room where, you know, he was showing some remorse for what he had done. And that's what was really peculiar to me is that 
he would have these drunken fits of rage and then later on show remorse. Not only was my dad an angry drunk, but he was also a sexist pig. He would talk nasty, like, hey, baby, your pussy's so hot, all through our childhood. That's just how our dad treated our mom, and our mom seemed to enjoy it. She would just, like, smile and laugh. It was just really uncomfortable. My dad was constantly trying to set me up. Whenever we would go out to eat, he would try to set me up with waitresses. Even if they were much older or even married, my dad would always try to set me up with them. When we were driving down the street, and this was with my mom and sister present, he would have the windows rolled down and he would see a woman on the street and go, look at the titties on that. Curtis, hey, hey. And he'd honk his horn. Curtis, I bet I boost her self-esteem. He thought he was doing a service to women. When my sister was a little older, 16, and she started dating, he would get angry at her. You know, boys called, or if she called a guy, he always said, Don't ever call a guy. That's like you spreading your legs open. So there was always that double standard. Like I was allowed more freedom. I can treat women like objects. But my sister had to act in a completely opposite fashion. So my one sister, Amber, and I were very sheltered growing up. We weren't allowed to go over anyone's house. We weren't allowed to have friends come over our house. No birthday parties, no sleepovers, nothing like that. And that really made me want to have something outside of the home. It really made me want to join a sport. I had asked my parents if I can play soccer and baseball, and their answer was always no. My father, he didn't like his children's lives to interfere with his own. So he would say, I'm not wasting a perfectly good weekend to take you to practices and games. And my sister was in dance since she was three. And I always felt like they favored my sister over me because she was allowed to be in dance and I didn't have anything. One day I decided, well, if I can't take soccer, if I can't take baseball, maybe I can take dance. So I asked my parents, can I take dance? And my dad, he was like, why the hell would you want to do that? But eventually he said yes. And I just thought he was kind of embarrassed that I was taking dance. My father was a very homophobic individual, and he thought that only gay guys took dance. And my mom and sister had to assure my dad, no, there's a lot of guys that take dance. But my dad definitely could not, like, look me in the eye when he was dropping me off or picking me up. And I really was not interested in dance. 
but I felt it was something just to get out out of the house and you know something I can do with my sister. It was an awful experience for me. I felt like I do not belong. What the hell am I doing? And so I quit immediately. I was bullied a lot at school. I was always small for my age and I didn't have a lot of self-confidence. It was when my dad caught wind of me being bullied at school. My dad asked, "What the hell's wrong with you? If someone's messing with you, just punch him in the face." And that was his answer to anything. Anytime anyone ever questioned him, or disagreed with him in any way he would challenge them to a fight and so uh to this day my sister and I crack up um thinking about one of his famous lines which is back your shit up it's something that we can now laugh about and it was then that I took that as an opportunity to ask my dad Can I join Taekwondo? I need to learn how to fight. I need to defend myself from these bullies. He definitely didn't want to raise no wussy for a son. And so I started taking Taekwondo lessons. I didn't do anything on the weekend that would interfere with my dad and his snowmobiling or water skiing. I started to get really good. I actually moved through the ranks really quickly. I I had doubts that I would ever be able to defend myself against someone my own age and my own size let alone my father especially when he was in one of his drunken rages. So one day when I was 14 years old, my mom was doing a load of laundry. She said, "Throw it in your clothes." So I went downstairs and got all my dirty clothes and threw them in the washing machine, and she's like, "Throw in what you're wearing." And I was kind of embarrassed. I didn't want to get undressed in front of my mom. My mom's like, "Oh, just throw in your dirty clothes. I'll turn my head." So she turned around, and I took off my clothes and I threw them in the washing machine. So at that moment, my father came down the stairs. He's like, "What the fuck?" And I could tell he had been drinking and he was confused. And he grabbed my mom's arm. and he shoved her against the wall and what the hell is going on and he pushed her down the stairs i ran downstairs to my mom's aid and i was about to pick her up and she wasn't bleeding but she looked dazed and confused he's like don't you fucking touch her I'm like, "Oh shit, you know, I'm going to be next." And I wanted the dignity of being fully clothed for my beating. So I ran to my closet and was about to put on some clothes, and I didn't make it in time because my dad grabbed me by the throat and picked me up against the closet door and asked me, "Are you fucking your mother?" I didn't answer right away. because I was shocked he would even ask me such a question. He punched me in the stomach, kneed me in the groin, and asked me again, "Are you fucking your mom?" I said, "No." And he dropped me to the floor, you know, hunched over in the fetal position, and he grabbed my two martial arts trophies off of my dresser 
and smashed them to pieces on the floor. And then he stormed back upstairs. My sister was upstairs at the time and heard what was going on, so she ran downstairs to our aid and asked if we were okay. And I wanted my sister's comfort at the time, but I didn't want her getting in trouble. And so I told her, just go away. She went back upstairs and my dad yelled, everyone get in the living room now. If anyone's going to say something, they better say it to my fucking face. My sister said, well, why would you ask them if there was anything going on? It's normal for a son to dress in front of his mom. And my dad got lobster red, started shaking violently, and he clenched his fists, and I thought he was going to kill my sister. And he said, shut the fuck up, I didn't ask you, I'll kill you and Curtis and throw your dead bodies down a mine shaft. This was a shock. I mean, he had never given us death threats before. I thought about my Taekwondo, am I going to have to defend us? And luckily, he just stormed out of the house, slammed the door and sped away. I was shaking at that point. And I truly believed that he was going to come back and kill us. I had so much anger in me that I picked up one of his bar signs. Our living room looked like the inside of a bar room. So I grabbed one of his signs off of the wall and threw it against the brick fireplace. And I'm like, oh my God, now I'm in for it because my dad's beer signs were like his most prized possessions. And I grabbed a pair of scythes off of the wall, which are short striking swords. And I ran back upstairs and my sister was still with my mom. I mean, not much was being said. And I just didn't know what was going through my mom's head. She was just pretty quiet. She just said, oh, he just needs time to cool down. You know, like it was no big deal. But my sister and I definitely took the death threat more seriously. And that night, neither one of us wanted to sleep alone. I especially didn't want to sleep alone because my room was connected to the carport. And surely my dad would come home and kill me first. And so I slept in my sister's bedroom that night. We locked the door and we put her dresser up against the door and... I was just wondering, oh my God, he's going to come home at some point and I'm going to have to defend us. And so I just clutched onto my swords. I laid on the floor and early, like the wee hours of the morning, I heard my dad's footsteps come up the steps. And I'm like, oh my God, now he's coming to kill us. Oh my God, are we going to have enough time to call 911? My sister didn't have a phone in her room or anything. And my dad just went right past my sister's door and went down into his own bedroom. And I didn't hear another sound the rest of the night. Early the next day, my dad called me. He's like, Curtis, come on downstairs. I could tell that he was no longer drunk or angry. And I just stepped down the stairs and went into the kitchen where he was. And he was holding this um, punching and kicking bag. He said, here, I bought this for you. 
And that was my dad's way of apologizing. I mean, he never said the words, I'm sorry, or I was wrong. But he would just like buy us a gift or act like things were completely normal. I basically accepted his apology. I didn't know what else to do, but it definitely was not something that I've ever forgotten. And I thought, wow, now more than ever, I really need to get good at Taekwondo because I might have to defend myself or my sister or my mom and a lot more than defending myself from a school bully. I had doubts that I would ever be able to defend myself against my father, especially when he was in one of his drunken rages. And I always thought growing up that, oh, this is completely normal. I didn't realize what an isolated life I was living and how much abuse that I received, both physical and emotional. And I I think going to college is what really opened up my world. We would often have class debates. And just observing how people would take opposing views, but yet they didn't get angry with each other, and that they were able to carry on a conversation without challenging each other to a fight was a big eye-opener to me. Like, wow, my dad has some anger issues, and it is not normal to behave in that manner. I think I fell into teaching because my parents had owned a daycare center. And so it felt kind of natural to work with kids. But I definitely had a different approach to working with children than my parents. I think my past has helped me as a teacher because I can be more aware of signs of abuse. A couple of years ago, I had a student who was really defiant. There was one incident where she stabbed this sweet little girl who did nothing to her other than just sitting next to her, stabbed her right under the eye and drew blood. And I told my administrator, I have done everything I could to help this child. One day, this little girl was wearing jeans, but her crotch of her jeans were cut out. This was very strange. You know, I don't think she would be able to cut thick jean material because she's just this little tiny thing just turned five years old. When I asked her about it, She duck her head down and wouldn't say anything. And that's when I kind of suspected that, you know, possibly she had been sexually molested. So this girl was just crying out for help. And so I called social services. And almost immediately after I had reported the incident, her parents moved. But I later found out that she was in a special classroom 
specifically for emotionally disturbed students. And so I'd like to think that I had a role in getting her some needed help. But I think in the back of my mind, I will always wonder if I did enough. I've always been a different person than my father, and I always try to be the opposite of my father and be considerate and helpful to others. It has taken a lot of time to heal. I know at first when I moved out of the house and decided to break contact with my parents, I was very paranoid that they were going to try to find me and hurt me and I had deadbolts installed on all of our doors. I had video cameras installed and I even borrowed a couple of firearms from my father-in-law um, and I'm to the point now where it's like, oh, my parents have my address and my phone number, big deal. I don't worry about it. My sister and I are strong, and we have not let our parents ruin our lives. And it's been over a decade since my sister and I have spoken to our parents. So time has really helped with the healing process. Also, humor has helped. My wife and I created a board game called Pete's Game of Life. It pokes fun at the things that my father has done and said. Like when he told his own mother to go get fucked on her 80th birthday. As a teacher, it takes a lot of patience to work with kids, and my father certainly did not have the patience. So I'm really thankful that they finally retired and that they will no longer have a negative impact on children's lives. This is Risk. This is Tracy Chapman behind me now. And we just heard from Curtis Ferlisi. Holy cow. The first time that I heard that story was when I did a story studio workshop in Reno, Nevada. The very first time we brought Risk to Reno, Curtis got up and shared that story, like a five-minute version of it in the workshop. 
And like so many other people who take story studio workshops, he'd never done anything like that before, but he had people like people in the room were crying over this five minute story he shared. And I got his information and said, I would like for you to share that story with us on the podcast someday. Now, when we recorded it over Skype a couple months later, well, then that was the period where I had my bed bug crisis and one of our editors' house burnt down and it was just a total catastrophe. So we thought those files were lost for years. Literally years we thought those files were lost. But Curtis's wife, Sarah, kept poking me on email to say, hey, did you remember to look through some of your old hard drives to see if you can find it? And God damn it, if we didn't still have it. So I feel so much gratitude toward Curtis and Sarah because that story is so important and was shared so bravely. And uh, it's just a thrill to finally get it out there. We have one last story on this week's episode, and it comes from Tracy Segarra. She shared this at the Risk Live show at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Tracy is telling a story at the New York Moth Grand Slam next Thursday, August 11th, and her Long Island storytelling show can be found on Facebook at Now You're Talking. Here's Tracy now with a story we call What 50 Looks Like. Let us all be free, free, free. So it's a warm October day, and I am sitting in a Panera's eating soup and salad by myself. By myself, because I'm working in this job that I really can't stand anymore. I like have no friends there to go to lunch with. I'm in this marriage 15 years into a marriage, and for the last couple of years, it's just been very unhappy, and I'm not sure if I want to be in the marriage anymore. I have these two kids who are growing up and don't need me much anymore. And it's my 50th birthday. And so I'm sitting there and trying to like make the best of it and I write this Facebook post and I write, you know, I don't need anything special to make my 50th birthday special. I have everything I need, but that's all just crap. It is a total lie, because all I want is for my life to be exciting and meaningful, and right now all I feel is old and unhappy and alone. And I don't know what I'm going to do about it, I really don't. Well, a few weeks later, you know, part of my job in marketing is to look at social media sites, so I'm looking at Reddit which I've never been on before. And I'm looking around the site and I stumble across this subreddit called Gone Wild. <laughs> which, as you may expect, is exactly what it sounds like. It is mostly young women posting mostly anonymous nude photos of themselves for karma or points. You know, if people like it, they upvoted. If they don't, they downvoted. Very democratic. And... I'm intrigued. 
Well, a few weeks later, as I'm getting out of the shower, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I brought the, my phone in the shower. I am going to take a photo of this 50-year-old body, and I am going to post it on Reddit. You know, totally anonymous, you know, no face. And so I get out of the shower and I let the steam kind of evaporate a little and I position my phone and I take this gauzy, sexy photo of my body from the neck down. As I snap the photo, like a trickle of water is trickling down my neck. And that is not the only part of me that's wet because I have never been so excited about doing something in my life, right? I mean, I have never, I have not felt this in the longest time. So I get out of the shower and I quickly create a Reddit account and I post the photo and I title it, This is what 50 looks like. And I wait. And I don't have to wait long because within like 10 seconds, like ding, 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 my inbox is filled. This post is like climbing to the top of the page then to the top of the Reddit itself. By the time it exhausts its popularity, more than 250,000 people have viewed this photo. You know, I am a recovering drug addict, and this is better than cocaine, you know? <laughs> and I start getting these crazy messages. I mean, guys are messaging me, and they're, you know, this one guy writes, you know, may I tribute your photo? And very, you know, very polite, and I'm like, I'm 50 years old, I don't know what the fuck that means. So I Google it, <laughs> and apparently what that means is that he wants to print out a copy of my photo come all over it, take a picture of that, and then send it back to me. <laughs> like, that is a thing. That is a thing. Another guy just wants me to say mean things to him. <laughs> it's crazy, and I'm down this rabbit hole, and I start posting, like, every day. Every day. And, you know, I know, I know I am emotionally cheating on my husband, but... He and I have just been living separate lives. He is in a very angry state, and I'm walking on eggshells. And I, at this point, I just don't fucking care. It feels good, and I'm doing it, right? Well, and there's this one guy, you know, aside from some of the crazy fetishes that come out, there's this one guy called, you know, Tech Drone, and uh, he's in IT, and usually I can't stand guys in IT. They're just so fucking arrogant. Sorry if any of you are in IT. But in the sexual context, it's working for me. It's working for me. And we start having these very steamy conversations over Reddit through private chat. And I remember one day he sends me a message and he says... Um, what color panties are you wearing today? And I message him back, like, sorry to disappoint you, but, you know, just plain white cotton panties today, which incidentally are getting wet because you're asking me about them. And he says, post a photo of those wet panties on Reddit. And I do, and somehow that climbs to the top of the page. And I'm like, I have tapped into something, I don't know what the fuck is going on. And, you know, if I had my first sexual awakening when I first learned how to masturbate, I am, like, having my second one right now because I am, like, 
going to the bathroom at work everywhere. I'm, I'm like masturbating nonstop. You know? <laughs> and, you know, so I'm in this fantasy world 100%, you know? And I like to post photos before I go to work, and my fans like to see me in and out of my work clothes also. Another fetish. And... Um, so one day, I post this photo before I go to work, and I, I don't drive on a highway. I drive the back roads to work. So I'm driving, but of course, you know, I'm a dope fiend. Like, I need to see my stats, you know, after I post. I want to see my inbox filled. I want to see that post climbing to the top of the page. So at every stoplight and stop sign, I'm kind of like glancing down to see how the photo is doing. And at one point, I'm glancing down, and boom! I crash into the car in front of me. I total my car. The front end, like steam is coming up. My headlamp is like lying on the ground. People in the neighborhood are like rushing out of their houses to see if I'm okay. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe this. And I get out of my car and thankfully I'm okay. The guy I hit is okay. He's like this young taxi driver. He may have even been stoned. Probably the kind of guy who's looking at my photos on Reddit. But, um, <laughs> Anyway, he's okay, I'm okay, and you know, obviously this is a wake-up call, right? I can't keep doing this. But no, no, that doesn't stop me, you know? And one day, though, as I'm getting out of the shower, my husband happens to walk into the bathroom as I'm getting out of the shower, and I see him do a double take, and I know instantly what's going on. His face turns red, and the veins in his neck are bulging. I know what's going on because, you know, he and I have not been having sex, but in order to take these photos, a certain amount of grooming needs to be done. So I have been trimming my bush, and he notices, and he says, what the fuck are you doing, and who the fuck are you doing it with? I am, like, racking my brain to come up with some lie that would explain this and get out of it because I don't want to stop what I'm doing. And I just, I can't think of anything. And I realize the gig is up, you know, I have to tell him I'm going to have to confess. So he storms out of the bathroom, and I quickly wrap myself in a towel. I um, go into the bedroom, and I say, listen, I'm not cheating on you, well, not physically anyway, but I am doing this. <laughs> and I show him my phone, and I show him Reddit, and I show him what I've been doing. And, you know, he's not overly surprised because, you know, we've been very sexual when we first got together. It was incredible. It was wonderful. And, um, you know, so he's not so surprised, but he wants it to end. I'm standing there and I'm caught and I'm thinking about what I've been doing and now I'm forced to think about my marriage and think about him. And all of a sudden, I just don't care that he's angry and I tell him, I'm not stopping. You know, I'm... This makes me feel good, and I'm going to keep doing it. Instantly, I see his face turn from anger to, like, hurt, and then fear, because I think he knows we've been growing apart, barely talking. I think he knows, you know, the next step is an affair, and the next step, I'm out of there. And so he says, okay, you know, I'm not going to ask you to stop posting, but I want to be part of it. <laughs> like, this throws me for a loop. And um, he's actually an amazing photographer. <laughs> you 
know, and I've been taking photos with my little camera. He's got the real deal, you know. So he starts taking photos of me and posting them, and he creates a persona on Reddit, starts commenting on my photos. And during one photo shoot that I recall, one of the first ones, I'm wearing like this red button-down Oxford shirt and not much else. And he has created this whole scenario in our bedroom. He's put candles all around the room. And he's taking these photos, and in between the photos, he's like, he's like a fluffer on a porn set. He's like coming over and he's like caressing my neck and kissing the inside of my thighs. And after the photo shoot, we have the hottest sex that we've had in the longest, longest time. And, and you know, it breaks open just a tiny bit of communication between us, and it leads to us starting to have some really serious discussions about what's going on in our marriage, and I fucking hate them, but I know that they're necessary if, you know, I want to salvage this, and I'm not ready to give up on this marriage. And so, um, so at one point, while all this is going on, I realize one day that our, our kids are going away to camp that summer, and I say to him, let's go to Paris. Neither of us has ever been to Europe. I say, let's go to Paris while they're away. And he instantly says, yes. And so we go to Paris. And it's the most beautiful, magical trip of my life. And when we see the Eiffel Tower for the first time, I feel like I've walked into a movie, like the movie I always wanted to make of my life. And when we get home, you know, eventually I delete the photos and I, I delete my Reddit account. And yeah, I know the pictures are still out there somewhere, but, um, but things get better and our marriage gets better. And um, looking back now, I'm slightly horrified. <laughs> I was a public exhibitionist, I was. <laughs> maybe just a little bit proud. Um, you know, obviously I was going through a midlife crisis and, you know, some people adopt a pet, some people buy a sports car. Me, I became an internet sex goddess. Writing songs with synthesizers But I don't have a synthesizer I can still get down like Duran Duran in 1985 I didn't name my band after an animal Feathers or neon clothes But I can stay out all night Like Sacagawea in a paint fight
is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Butch Walker behind me now. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Risk Show. Like us on Facebook, at Risk Show. You can follow me on Twitter also, at the Kevin Allison. Always, always, always tell your friends to download the show, to follow the series, to subscribe to Risk on iTunes, comment about Risk on iTunes. You know who's commented about us on iTunes? I'll tell you. JK123, Superboy's Life, Salma Marie, SMets301. You can be like them! Give us a nice review. Or even the classic love the show, hate Kevin. (laughs) I mean, if you do that, still try to give us five stars. But yes, it does mean the world to us that people are giving us ratings, commenting about the show, and talking it up out there on the interwebs. Here's where we're coming next, folks. On August 20th. We're at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles on August 24th. We are back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. On September 17th, we return to Salt Lake City, Utah. Remember what a fantastic show that was the last time. Salt Lake, we are back on September 17th. There's still time to pitch us, too. The theme is outrageous. On September 30th, we're in Richmond, Virginia for the first time ever. The theme is juicy. So pitch us there, Richmond, Virginia folks. On November 11th, we are in New Orleans. The theme is legends that night. Pitch us for that as well. Anyone in New Orleans on November 12th, the next night, we're in Baltimore for the first time ever. The theme that night is wounded. You can always pitch us, guys, at the submissions page at risk-show.com. Just include in your pitch what city you're pitching from. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Get out of the house. Get yourself down.